Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. This is a weekly podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. And I would just like to give a shout out. We have been crushing it. America the Bazaar headquarters, global headquarters, <laughs> has been getting a much needed facelift with the new deck. Yes, we've and been. And <laughs> some deep cleaning. I call this extra time we're having. Yeah, it's been nice. Yeah, our headquarters slash our home <laughs> has finally gotten a little bit cleaner. A lot of it cleaner. And a little more thanks moved to in. quarantine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we actually moved into this house in October, and between us both working full-time jobs and Jeremy going to law school and the podcast and also having a toddler, mm-hmm. it took us a while to move in, and this gave us the finally the opportunity i you know what i'm i made it it's after march 21st so i'm finally gonna have the garage clean so Woo-hoo! we can park cars in there <laughs> i can't wait to actually does anybody ever like park in their garage right is that a thing so i hope everybody else is staying healthy and sane and happy in your homes during this crazy crazy time we just keep saying to each other you know what it's gonna be crazy in like 20 years when you know there's kids doing elementary school reports on the global pandemic of 2020 right. and they're gonna be right. interviewed right. so can't wait so this week's presidential quiz i you know just just think about it a little bit there's I feel like kind of a giveaway to it, Mm in a way. But the quiz this week is, what president broke into his law school office to check his law grades before they were posted? Hmm. Uh, I want to say Howard Taft. Howard Taft. Right? Uh, I I don't think so, but you're like making me suck. I want to say it's William Taft. William Uh, Howard Taft. William Howard Taft. William, is that what it is? Yes, William Howard Taft. Yeah, yeah. Just because he was the only president who also became a Supreme Justice. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. But there was a lot of presidents that went to law school. Yeah. So, the thing about it, and the answer will be at the end of this episode. Yes. So, for this week's episode... You know, a lot of people have had their travel plans canceled. Summer is a huge time for people to travel, including us. We had a big trip uh, planned to Europe, Germany, Italy this summer. And unfortunately, that got canceled because of this this virus. Who would have known? So instead, I decided to put together a travel-themed episode for everybody. Nice. So to start us off, we're going to go back to the golden age of flying, the Ooh. 50s and 60s, uh, yeah. where flying was seen as a luxurious experience compared to flying now. Well, and people weren't wearing their PJs and their Crocs. Yeah. And by people, you mean me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't wear I am Crocs. those people. I don't wear Crocs. Yeah. I wear moccasins. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. But like, I don't know, just something about exposed feet. You know, on an airplane, it's like, it's like, nobody... Well, I can't stand if somebody's wearing shoes, even if it's flip-flops, and then they take them off during the flight. That really grosses me out for some reason. And I don't even know, it's just, even with the flip-flop, it's just that, like, tiny barrier that at least, I don't know. 
keeps the world turning. I, I, I don't I, know. <laughs> I, I, I disagree. I say close. I, everybody should be required to uh, close close their shoes. This is a <laughs> high school science class. <laughs> okay. So yes, people. What if we're stuck on? What if we crash somewhere in the middle of the mountains and you got flip flops on? Like yeah, but what if you crash on a beach? Yeah. Oh, okay. You want to get sand up in your yeah, how many trainers? F- how, many fli- <laughs> how many flights go across a beach versus how many flights go across dry land? I don't know. Have you seen any, like... <laughs> <laughs> have you seen any Tom Hanks movie? <laughs> or the whole show Lost? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess nowadays most flights, they're either found or disappeared in the ocean. Yeah. See? Not in a mountain ocean. <laughs> so, by that logic, we should all be wearing swimwear. Everybody should be wearing flippers. <laughs> We're gonna start that trend when we can fly again. Uh, yeah, and sparkle so, masks. Yeah, so in the 50s and 60s, flying was much nicer. People would actually dress up in their nice clothes, mm-hmm. rather than sweats, comfy pants, to get on the flight. The flying was much more expensive than it is now, and it took you a lot longer. But the planes but the, were nicer, the too. The planes were nicer. Yeah. There were framed pictures hanging on the walls. There was... On those round walls? Yeah. <laughs> uh, aisles were wider. Seats reclined back further, and there was way more leg room. Yeah. Like, now they just... They literally have taken all those big seats out and uh-huh. crammed as many seats. Because yeah. it's about numbers now. Yeah, it's a numbers game, baby. So, there was also a lot of free drinks poured, and cigarettes, uh, smoke filled the cabin. Uh, there shameless, were no rules. Shameless plug for Alaska Airlines. You get one free beverage on That's their flights. That's true. I if, don't know of any other flights that still provide a free alcoholic beverage. I do enjoy Alaska Airlines because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate yeah. them. And they're one of the they're one of the airlines that's like, uh, I was reading an article that they're really designed to survive this sort of economic impact that, well, that the pandemic's having. Like, you mean they actually had money in the bank saved instead of just living paycheck to paycheck? Yeah, <laughs> and I saw another one that was like, oh, what do you mean you don't have a emergency fund? You charged me $56 for a check bag. Right? <laughs> Stingy. So get. Well, good for you, Alaska Airlines. Yeah, it works out. And then... So then, you know, instead of peanuts, which I don't even think you get anymore, really, because mm-hmm. so many people have peanut allergies, you get, like, an off-brand Chex Mix mm-hmm. bag. You would, or Stroop Waffle. I do, I do like the Stroop Waffle. Mm-hmm. But back in the 50s and 60s, you would get, like, steak and lobster, <laughs> and it was served on China. The surf and turf. <laughs> yeah. You got real fabric napkins. Yeah. Silverware. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was also a lot easier to board a plane than it is now. Back then, you could get out of your car, walk through the airport, and board your plane, all without having to go through a metal detector, or an x-ray machine, or getting a pat-down. You could go right up to the plane while it was sitting on the tarmac, and board without showing a ticket or identification. There were even airlines that would allow for passengers to pay for their fare after the plane had already taken off. (laughs) Like a train. Like a train. Yeah. Like the train we took in Boston. Yes. So... A s- small town, Idaho, folks. Went to the East Coast for our honeymoon. Thought, yeah, and so we boarded this train in Boston, and we Going thought, from our hotel into downtown. Yeah, and we were told that you could just, instead of buying a ticket beforehand, you could pay once you yeah, were already on, on the board. train. So we had cash with us. Well, guess who doesn't take cash? Yeah. 
Trains. That train. That guy. The ticket guy on the train. And so he was like very upset that we didn't know how things worked. He was like, by the time I get back here, you better have figured it out. And we were like, figured what out? (laughs) And then luckily there was a nice Midwestern family that was like sitting close to us. And they were like, hey, download this app, tie it to your credit card. Yeah. Because he also didn't have like a credit card reader. He just wanted tickets. Yeah, we tried with cash, we tried with credit card, and he was like, nope, nope, nope doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> and that uh, family told us how to uh, download the app. And- so, yes, planes also used to be like that, uh, except I'm pretty sure they would accept cash. Uh, On May 1st, 1961, a man named Ramirez Ortiz entered the cockpit of a National Airlines Convair 440 flight that was headed to Key West, Florida. Ortiz had a steak knife and held it to the pilot's throat and said, If I don't see Havana in 30 minutes, we all die. The flight crew complied, and the plane changed course for Havana, Cuba. When the plane first came into Cuba airspace, they were threatened with anti-aircraft fire. But when the plane crew explained what was happening, Cuban air traffic controllers let them land at a military base just south of Havana. (laughs) Ramirez Ortiz... Ortiz deboarded the plane with his 85 pounds of checked luggage, but was then immediately... Yeah, he he was moving to Cuba. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you gotta... Yeah. He had his couch in there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because, yeah, really, you're moving to Cuba. All you need is, like, a couple tank tops and shorts. Yeah, your sandals. And the flip-flops flip-flops. that you're already wearing. <laughs> Hawaiian t-shirts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but he was immediately dragged away by Cuban soldiers as soon as he stepped off the plane. The rest of the passengers were given a chicken lunch, and then they were take then they took off from Cuba and made their way to Key West like originally planned. Their arrival in Key West ended up being only delayed by three hours. It's pretty good. So it was like just a little jaunt. Yeah, a little layover. Yeah, a little stopover. This was the first hijacking of an American aircraft, so there were technically no laws specifically against hijacking a plane. I feel like we've done episodes before that was like, this is the first time this has happened, so there was no laws. It was a grave robbing one. Yeah, 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 National Treasure 3. Yeah, when they tried to steal Lincoln's body, and there's no laws against that either. So the FBI figured that Ortiz was crazy and that this hijacking incident was once in a blue moon and nobody got hurt, so they just kind of let it go. So they still didn't make any laws against hijacking. It's not going to be a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. On July 24th, 1961, a Tampa-bound flight was hijacked and flown to Havana. Fidel Castro decided that he would keep this plane in Cuba until one of Cuba's naval vessels was returned. This convinced several Americans that Castro was behind these hijackings, when in reality, he was just trying to take advantage of this insane situation. <laughs> He's an opportunist. He is. He's like, oh, wow. These American planes just keep showing up on my doorstep. <laughs> yeah, might as well do something about it, yeah. you know? The American plane was eventually traded for the Cuban ship. Eight days after that hijacking, a man named Bruce Britt tried to hijack a plane that was flying from Chico, California to Smackover, Arkansas, so that he could impress his estranged wife. Because nothing says, I still love you, like hijacking a plane. Britt. Uh, uh, I think it is worth. Bah. I think it is worth it to know that doesn't, that's not a good show of love. Yeah, that was, yeah, pure Terrible, sarcasm yeah. if anybody is, has got any ideas. <laughs> yeah. 
So Britt ended up shooting a ticket agent and the plane's captain before what? the plane even took off, and he was subdued by other passengers. The, both the pilot and the ticket agent survived, but the pilot was blind for the rest of his life. Less than 48 hours after Britt's hijacking attempt, 41-year-old Leon Bairdin and his 16-year-old son Cody boarded a Boeing 707 flying to El Paso with a couple of loaded pistols. Once in the air, they held a couple of stewardesses at gunpoint while they made their demands. Their plan was that the pilot would continue the flight to El Paso, and then after refueling and letting all but four of the passengers get off the plane, the pilot would then fly them to Havana. The Beardens figured that Castro would give them Cuban citizenship after they offered the plane worth $5.4 million to him as a gift. One of the passengers asked... What? What? The plane's worth? Yeah. Well, you think about that these, like, a huge jet back in the 60s, it's worth a lot of money. So one of the passengers asked Leon why he wanted to even go to Cuba, and he said, I'm just fed up. I don't want to be an American anymore. Hmm. By the time that the plane, but it's like, but you want to be Cuban? Cuban? You know what's going there on there? Okay. Yeah, you couldn't have have picked, like, I don't know. Canada? I mean... (laughs) It's cold in Canada. I get it. I mean, I mean <laughs> but it's just another. Beaches, clo- it's just like another like close place, yeah, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So by the time that the plane had gotten to El Paso to refuel, President John F. Kennedy had been briefed on the latest hijacking. Things were very tense with Cuba, and they had already had two flights be hijacked to Havana, which was very embarrassing for America. But this, yeah, they're gonna get all the Cuban ships are gonna be returned. Yeah, returned to Cuba. We have to give up everything. Yeah. But this was the first time that it was white men and not Latino men that were doing the hijacking. JFK knew that Castro would love to use these men as an example that American citizens were trying to escape the evils of capitalism. JFK gave the FBI the go ahead to do whatever they deemed necessary to stop this hijacking. In El Paso, the ground crew were told by the FBI to do whatever they could to stall the plane from leaving after the passengers had been released. They pretended that there was several hours of maintenance needed if the plane was going to make the 1,500-mile flight to Havana. After what seemed like forever, Leon was getting antsy to get going and told the pilot to take off. He then shot a bullet between the co-pilot's feet to make his point. The pilot took that (laughs) (laughs) and started to take off, but the plane only made it 50 yards down the runway when a dozen federal agents started shooting at the plane's landing gear and engines with submachine guns. With the plane like that's now, when they decide to show up? Like, yeah. after they've had all the hours? I don't know what they around. were doing. Maybe like, it was, like, just by chance they finally yeah, showed up? I don't know why yeah. it took them that long. Classic government workers. <laughs> Wait until the last uh, minute. Yeah. <laughs> so, with the plane now grounded, Leon and his son Cody agreed to speak with an FBI negotiator. Because... Yeah, you're not going anywhere now. A negotiator boarded the plane, but Leon started to get nervous and started waving his gun around and yelling that he'd rather kill himself than go to prison. That's when Leon heard a noise in the main cabin and turned around to see a stewardess sneaking out of one of the plane's exits. One of the passengers still on board took that opportunity to punch Leon in the ear and knock him to the ground. The FBI negotiator then tackled Cody. Both men were taken into custody. The next day, on August 4th, the Senate Aviation Subcommittee held an an emergency meeting to address all of these hijackings. Remember, at this time, there's technically still no law against hijacking an aircraft, so the Beardens could only be charged with kidnapping. 
Federal legislators put a lot of counts of kidnappings. So many kidnappings. Federal legislators were now determined to change that fact. Senator Yarborough of Texas wanted to make air piracy a capital crime, and other legislation was brought forward that would require cockpit doors to lock, pilots to receive firearm training, and the Justice Department would give out a $10,000 reward for information that led to the arrest and conviction of anyone involved in the actual attempted or planned hijacking of aircraft. Is that offer still on the table today? I would imagine that something similar. While Congress was still discussing the issue of air piracy, a man named Albert K. Don from New York City hijacked a plane that was headed for Guatemala City and had the flight redirected to Havana, Cuba. After Albert Kadan arrived in Cuba, the Senate unanimously passed an air piracy bill, and JFK signed it into law on September 5, 1961. On September 17th, it was reported that Cuba executed two attempted airline hijackers by firing squad. But from what I could tell, they had executed two Cubans that tried to hijack a Cuban flight. It didn't have anything. This didn't have anything to do with Americans, but yeah. it was obvious that Cuba was taking hijackings very seriously. Yeah. They were like, "We ain't gonna put up with this shit." <laughs> yeah. So after that, <laughs> it seemed that the air piracy bill was doing its job of dissuading possible skyjackers, and there were no hijackings of American aircraft for the rest of the year. In fact, there were no hijackings in 1962, 1963, or 1964. On August 31st, 1965, Harry Fergerstorm, a 14-year-old, hijacked a plane in Honolulu that he said he was doing in protest of Hawaii becoming a U.S. state. Harry peacefully surrendered to authorities, but six weeks later, two Navy sailors hijacked another Hawaii flight with hunting knives and demanded to be taken to the respective hometowns, White Earth, Minnesota, and Watonga, Oklahoma. Which, I mean... You're in Hawaii. You really want to go back to Minnesota and Oklahoma? Yeah. I mean, no offense to the next. I mean, yeah. Maybe it's just they just didn't want to be in the Navy anymore, no matter where they were. Island island fever. Let's chalk it up to island fever. However, so they were also not successful in their hijackings. However, a new wave of hijackings was just beginning. There was Luis Perez, a Cuban exile who tried hijacking a Florida flight to go to Havana so that he could personally meet with Castro and beg for his family's freedom. Three weeks after that, a 16-year-old named Thomas Robert Robinson hijacked a plane departing from New Orleans with plans to go to Cuba so that he could organize a jailbreak of Cuba's political prisoners. He fired several shots into the fuselage but was then tackled by passengers of the flight. Hmm. Despite these failed skyjackings, many more began to take place and many succeeded in actually making it to Havana. (laughs) Several of these Americans believed that they would have a great life once they arrived in Cuba and would be seen as heroes in Castro's revolution. One hijacker said about seeing the Jose Marti International Airport runway lights, In a few hours, it would be dawn in a new world. I was about to enter paradise. Cuba was creating a true democracy, a place where everyone was equal, where (laughs) violence against blacks and justice and racism were things of the past. I had come to Cuba to feel freedom at least once. These skyjackers were right that Castro was happy to welcome the hijacked flights into Cuba. But for other reasons, right? Yeah. Every time an American plane landed in Havana, it caused not only embarrassment to the Americans, but Castro also charged the airline $7,500 to get their plane back every single time. Castro, what? Which is like, he probably could have asked for more, especially with how expensive the planes were, you know? Yeah. 
But maybe his thinking was, if I don't charge all that much, then it'll... Yeah, it'll be a drop in the hat. Yeah, yeah. and they'll be willing to pay it, yeah. you know, easy peasy. Yeah. So, Castro did not care for the Skyjackers themselves, though. Usually, once a hijacker got off the plane, they were taken by Cuba's secret police, called the G2, to be interrogated. Hmm. They would usually be interrogated about working for the CIA for weeks. If the G2 was satisfied with their answers, they were sent to live at the Casa de Transitos, or the hijacker's house. Each American hijacker got 16 square feet of living space in the two-story building. So that's like, what did we determine? It's It's two by eight. eight. Yeah, or four by four, four feet by four feet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking usable. You'd do a two by eight so you could at least have a... Like a cot, and then like a place to put your belongings at the end it's of your cot. Like, but yeah, literally a place to lay down, and <laughs> then a place to stand. That's it. Uh, and they also received a monthly stipend of forty pesos. It's just like just like a giant like hostel. Yeah. <laughs> like no privacy. No. If the G two was so, that was if you know you gave good answers yeah. to the G two. If, if you weren't questioned further beyond Probably, the initial few weeks of it. Questioning. Probably if you seemed really, really dumb, yeah. that's when you got to go live in the hijacker's house. <laughs> if the G2 was not happy with the answers that the hijackers gave them during interrogation, the hijacker was sent to a sugar harvesting camp that is described best as a tropical gulag. They were hit with machetes, those that tried to cause an uprising were publicly executed, and if you tried to escape, you were dragged across stalks of sugar cane that had been sharpened to be like razors until your flesh was in pieces. One American hijacker was beaten so badly by his guards that he lost an eye, and another hijacker committed suicide by hanging himself in his cell. Word of these camps made their way back to America, but it didn't do anything to quell the hijackings. Hijackers were always optimistic that Castro would like them and it would be different with them. So, you know, it's it, it's it's different with me. I'm different. Yeah, yeah, He'll yeah. love me I'm and special. we're going to be best friends. Yeah, I'm special. So all of the hijackers had a different reason for going to Cuba and they were usually all equally dumb ideas. A sociology student from Kalamazoo, Michigan, hijacked a Piper PA-24 to Havana so he could study communism firsthand, which, what a pretentious thing to do. I hate hate that guy. Yeah, yeah, he's just... I imagine (laughs) wearing his fedora and his smoking jacket. Like, oh, I'm just gonna go study communism up close. Like, what do you think's gonna happen? Right? Like, how ignorant are you? Naive are you? So, uh, one Cuban exile hijacked a flight to Havana because he missed his mother's frijoles. (laughs) And then this doesn't have anything to do with a reason for hijacking a plane, but there was an heir to a New Mexico real estate fortune that they hijacked a plane to Havana and they were just dressed up as a cowboy. Just, like, just outfitted completely. Just, uh... Uh, board. Yeah, just something to air. just something to do. Yeah. By July of nineteen sixty eight, the Senate decided to hold another hearing on the hijackings. So it's been seven years since their last one, and there's been a ton more. Mm-hmm. So like, oh maybe we should talk about this again. <laughs> I don't think it's working. Yeah. <laughs> During the hearing the FAA's representative said it's impossible short uh, it's an impossible problem short of searching every passenger. If you got if you've got a man aboard that wants to go to Havana and he has a gun, that's all he needs. 
Senator George Smathers of Florida suggested that airports use metal detectors or x-ray machines that several maximum security prisons and military facilities were currently using so that they could screen passengers before they boarded. However, airline lobbyists said of screening that it would have a bad psychological effect on passengers. It would scare the pants off people. Plus, people would complain about invasion of privacy. Basically, um, airlines... All those arguments that were brought up and ultimately have been determined to be not an issue. Yeah. Basically, they thought, you know, they're like, you know, if we do this, then people will stop flying and we're going to go bankrupt. Um, we would, you know, we figure... Yeah. they Which, at this point, maybe, you know, it's so expensive. Yeah. Like, so you have to have an expense... You have to have, like, a hijacker who has money. Right. But at the same time, like... <laughs> What do you do about the planes that don't take payment until you're already on board? Right. <laughs> so there was there was some other alternatives that they could have done. Yes. But so the airlines estimated that each hijacking cost them about twenty thousand dollars, which included Castro's fee plus canceling flights and giving <laughs> kidnapped flight crews extra vacation time. But they figured that that would actually cost them less than if people stopped flying God. because it would be an invasion of privacy <laughs> and a bigger pain in the butt. Oh my gosh, the cost benefit. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're just like, mm. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did that Whoa. little. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody's died. Yeah, exactly. Like, nobody's uh, died. It's fine. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll just keep doing it. Like, so, yeah, the suggestion of using. It's frequent, but it's not like that frequent. Right, yeah. <laughs> So the suggestion of using the screening devices was dropped. And, you know, it's usually a different airline every time, so they're all kind of, like, sharing the costs. Yeah, well, it only happened to us, like, three times this Right, year. yeah. Instead, the State Department proposed that they would offer a free one-way flight to Cuba for anybody that wanted to go. All they had to do was just promise that they would never come back to the U.S. Yeah. Fidel Castro, though, refused to accept these flights. He's like, I don't want these people. Yeah. So the airlines decided that they would just focus on avoiding as much violence as possible. Yeah. You know, passenger fatalities is bad press. So each airline came up with their own policy that would direct a crew on how to handle a hijacking. Mostly how to be completely compliant with all of a hijacker's demands. That was basically just do whatever they say. That <laughs> so was the, the plan. So the training here is... We haven't taught all the other flight a- flight attendants how to respond. Yeah. Which they have, and they've done a good job, so we're just going to teach what they did to you, which is probably what your natural instinct would have been. Exactly. Don't be a hero was, like, the only rule. <laughs> that was the... That was the program. Yeah. Cockpits all had charts of the Caribbean Sea, no matter where the plane's <laughs> flight destination was, so they could all find their way to Cuba. Yeah. Pilots were given briefs on landing procedures at Jose Marti International Airport, and were also given cards that had phrases so they could communicate with Spanish-speaking hijackers that said things like, I must open my flight bag for maps, or... Aircraft has mechanical problems, can't make Cuba. <laughs> air traffic controllers had a dedicated phone line for reaching Cuban air traffic controllers so they could let them know when there was an incoming flight. Oh and the gosh. Switzerland embassy in Havana had a form letter that airlines could use whenever they needed to ask for their stolen plane back. Oh, did your plane... coming so normalized. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, did you get your plane stolen? Fill out here, here, and here, and 
you know, Pay your seventy five hundred dollars. Yeah. Oh, uh, we as the Swiss Embassy charge a fifty dollar convenience fee for this form. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how. Yeah, the Swiss are always trying to they're find jump, ways. They're jumping on it. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if you know they're also like if you don't have the seventy five hundred dollars with you, yeah. we'll give you a small loan. Yeah, yeah. It's like a payday loan yeah. just to get your plane back. <laughs> yeah, they hold the title to the plane. Yeah, with like insane amount of interest. Uh, interest. Yeah. In 1968, after the 22nd hijacking that year, Time published a travel guide titled "What to Do When the Hijacker Comes" that included tips like, "Oh my god, <laughs> even more normalized by Time yeah. Magazine." Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, tips like, "Don't panic, hijackers, although unwelcome, can be congenial." <laughs> One of the three men who took over Pan American San Juan bound flight 281 in November, identified only as Jose, passed out 32 caliber bullets as souvenirs and chem- and chatted amicably with passengers. Oh my god. They're not bad people. They're just holding guns to your head. (laughs) They're just threatening your life. Yeah. Time also recommended not pushing the call button if your plane had been hijacked (laughs) because the sudden ping in the cockpit might startle the felon and provoke him to fire his pistol. Oh my gosh. (laughs) However, once you got to Havana, things were pretty nice. The Cuban government usually put the kidnapped passengers up in the Habana Libre and retreated to nightclubs and daiquiris. <laughs> the travel guide went on to explain that the shopping in downtown Havana was pretty nice. You could buy cigars, rum, East German cameras, and beautifully embroidered Czech peasant blouses while waiting to be taken back to the U.S. Oh, it's, now it's becoming a vacation. Like, yeah, it's kind of people like... People are hope, like buying cheap flights... Hoping that they end up in Havana. <laughs> right. Hoping they get a nice yeah. layover. Yeah, yeah. Hijackings kept... Like the, like the layover, like in Iceland. Like, yeah. Hey, hey, yeah, let's... I know while this... you're here, like, extend your stay and go check out the volcanoes. Take a long layover. Go check out the markets and the beaches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have some daiquiris. Smoke some cigars. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Hijackings kept becoming more and more frequent. By the second week of February in 1969, they heard there had already been 11 air, uh, 11 air hijackings that year in the United States. So 11 hijackings in six weeks. Wow. The FAA decided that just going with the flow wasn't working. And what? Yeah. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Yeah. And they created an anti-hijacking task force that would come up with solutions to all of these hijackings. Almost as soon as the task force was formed, citizens from all across the country sent letters with their ideas on how to lessen the hijackings. Some of these ideas were installing trap doors just outside of the cockpit. <laughs> like, I've got a bomb, and then they press a button, and then he'd like Boom. fall, yeah, yeah. down um, sir, to the Can you take two steps forward? You're not standing quite yeah. over the trap um, there. Can you see the X there? Can you? <laughs> I can't imagine that's good for the pressure in the cabin. Uh, Another idea was to give stewardesses tranquilizer darts that they could just stab a hijacker in the neck with. Uh, one of the ideas was make passengers wear boxing gloves during the flight so they couldn't hold knives or a gun. <laughs> no, they'll just all be punching each other. I'm like, okay, I'll go through a metal detector if you don't make me wear the boxing gloves the entire flight. <laughs> right. How am I supposed to eat my uh, steak and lobster? Yeah, I couldn't go to the bathroom last yeah. time. I ended up peeing my pants because <laughs> I had the boxing gloves on. Yeah. Uh, and my favorite idea, playing the Cuban national anthem right before takeoff and then arresting anybody who sang along. <laughs> that was your favorite? I think that's just hilarious. 
Like, oh. like so I feel like somebody, you know, I mean, I know a lot of these people were dumb, but you'd be like, hey, maybe I shouldn't sing along to the Cuban National Anthem. Uh, yeah. uh, and then, so... Like, like yeah, who's... It's just a dumb idea. It's Yeah, it's ridiculous. So there was actually one idea that kept getting sent in, and that was for them to build a mock version of the Jose Marti International Airport in southern Florida. So they'd be like, oh, look, we're already here. Yeah. Here we are. And then they'd get yeah. off and be like, all right. And then they'd get arrested by the FBI. Yeah. So, have somebody dress, have, like, actors dressed up as yeah. Castro. And the the FBI... The FAA task force actually really liked that last idea, but it ended up being deemed too expensive. So apparently still just paying Castro and whatever, uh, his fee was, uh, still Castro, less, was still less money than building a fake airport. Yeah. I don't know. I can't imagine. Maybe it's more expensive than I think, but... So instead, they just settled on an advertising campaign that reminded people that skyjacking was punishable by death. And in the fall of 1969, skyjacking actually did start to slow down. When asked if the advertising was working, the head of the FAA's Miami office said, it's possible that the fad had just died out. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I don't think that was our best idea, but lucky for us, it's yeah, working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Correlation does not equal causation. <laughs> yeah. Plane hijackings were now just two or three a month instead well, of two or three it. a week. Yeah. yeah. However, after an Italian-American Marine hijacked a plane and redirected it to Rome in November of 1969, the FAA decided to implement a new system. One of the task force members named John Daly analyzed the characteristics of every single American hijacker since the first one in 1961. By this time, there had been more than 70 and found that there was no one personality trait or underlying reason for hijacking that they all shared. But many did act out their hijackings very similarly. So Daly created a checklist for airlines to use to, de to determine if a passenger was a potential hijacker or not. The checklist included paying for a ticket in an unconventional way, or failing to maintain eye contact, or not give a straight answer about what was in their luggage. If a passenger met any of these criteria, they were asked to go into a private area where a federal marshal would use a metal detector wand on them and their luggage. Almost immediately after the screening process began, hijacking started to decline in number. There was only one hijacking in January of 1970 and only one in February. <laughs> Janitors at airports started to find guns and knives hidden in potted plants all over the airports from hijackers that had chickened out after seeing screening notices. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, that had to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Look it's at like, all these free guns. It's like a scavenger hunt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they grow like potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> so, that was until a man named Arthur Gates Barkley hijacked a plane with a twenty two caliber pistol, a straight razor, and a can full of gasoline. <laughs> when he had arrived at the airport, the airline's metal detector wasn't working, and the airport was extremely busy, so Barkley was able to just board his plane without any kind of trouble. <laughs> Instead of going to Havana, though, Barkley wanted $100 million from the Supreme Court. Which, do you think that... Why would you ask for $100 million from the Supreme Court? Like, they're not the people that I think have all the money. Unless they're just, you know, that's what they're hiding underneath all those robes. <laughs> so, You've been I, waiting all night to tell me that joke. I have. <laughs> I'm glad it worked out for me. The pilots tried to talk him into going to Cuba instead. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to go to Cuba? We know how to do that. Yeah. 
But nope, he wanted his money. So FBI agents lined a runway with a hundred mail sacks that allegedly each contained a million dollars. They were actually just filled with newspapers. When the plane landed, the landing gear was shot out by a policeman and the FBI stormed the plane and arrested Barkley. Though he was unsuccessful, Barkley started a new wave of skyjackings in America. Then the terrorist group called the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine hijacked four planes at the same time, and three of those planes were American. Three of the hijackings were successful. One of the planes was flown to Cairo after the hostages were released and was blown up with hand grenades. The other two planes were flown to Zarqua, Jordan, where the passengers were still being held hostage and were paraded past reporters by masked guards. 86 of the hostages were Americans. Five days after the hostages were shown to the reporters, the planes were destroyed by dynamite in front of Western Western film crews. Two weeks after the hijackings, the hostages were were recovered and sent back to the United States in return for PFLP prisoners. President Nixon unveiled his anti-hijacking plan after this incident, which included methods of detecting weapons and a sky marshal program. However, this did literally nothing to deter hijackers, and planes just kept getting hijacked. There was an insurance company that started offering hijacking insurance. You would pay $75 per flight, and if you were hijacked, you could receive $500 a day while in captivity, plus $2,500 in medical coverage, and $5,000 in the event of death and dismemberment. Ah, insurance companies. Yes. Just capitalizing on people's fear. (laughs) By the summer of 1971, there was a hijacking almost every single week, and the demands of the skyjackers kept getting more ridiculous. They weren't just asking to go to Cuba anymore, they were asking to travel to the other side of the world, or large sums of cash, or both. On June 11, 1971, the first hostage in a skyjacking incident was killed. 1971? Yeah. So we made it 10 years? It's been 10 years, and... I mean, some 10 severe years. Dismember- some severe dismemberment. Yes. But no deaths. Yeah. And on November 24th, 1971, Dan D.B. Cooper infamously hijacked a Boeing 727 somewhere in between Portland, Oregon and Seattle, Washington. Cooper told a stewardess that he had a bomb in his briefcase and he needed $200,000 in cash and four parachutes or he would blow the plane to pieces. Once they landed in Seattle, Cooper got his cash and parachutes and allowed for the passengers to be released. He then demanded that the plane head to Mexico City with a refuel stop in Reno, Nevada. But before the plane ever even reached the Oregon border, Cooper jumped out of the plane with the cash. He was never seen again. And that just kind of helped even more hijackings happen. Because this guy got away with cash. In October of 1972, three men hijacked a commuter airplane with 26 passengers and demanded $10 million, 10 bulletproof vests, 10 parachutes, and a certified letter from the White House that the des- that the designated cash was a government grant. I don't know, for tax purposes? I don't, <laughs> I don't know why you would need that letter. The crew tried to negotiate, probably like, are you sure you don't want to go please, to Cuba? Please, we-, we could take you to Havana. <laughs> yeah. I'll say I was the hijacker. Yeah, I'm out of cigars. Like, if we could just go to Cuba, it'd be great. <laughs> I could really use a daiquiri. Yeah, <laughs> they're the only ones that know how to make yeah, it right. My gosh, I have been to Hawaii, <laughs> San Diego, Florida. And nobody can get it just right. Yeah, just nothing like the Cubans can make. Yeah. So, the, neg- the hijackers refused to come down in price, though, or to 
go to Cuba. Yeah. So while in the air, the hijackers drink 40 of the little liquor bottles that come on airplanes. <laughs> oh they then threaten to fly the plane into the atomic reactor at Oak Ridge in Tennessee. The airline was then able to scrounge together $2 million in cash and left it at the Chattanooga airport. The hijackers were so awed by how much cash they had gotten, they didn't even realize that they were short $8 million. <laughs> but you think about it, seeing $2 million probably looks like, or feels like $10 million. Oh, yeah. They started handing out cash to everyone on the plane. The captain co-pilot even got $300,000. Jeez. So, I mean, they're also hammered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm sorry. I like you. You're a nice person. No, you're not too bad. Here, so, here, take, a, here take this wad of cash. Yeah. They then agreed to go to Havana. Fidel Castro was told that another hijacked plane was coming to Cuba, and he was so fed up with it that he personally went to the Jose Marti International <laughs> Airport to make sure that these lunatics never got into Cuba. I am not in the mood <laughs> yeah. for another one of these damn American planes. So once the plane landed, they were told that no one was allowed to get off the plane, and they had to turn around and go right back to the U.S. When the plane landed in Orlando to refuel, the FBI fired up the plane, trying to take out the landing gear and their oh. go-to move. The hijackers made the pilot take off immediately, and even though the plane was now full of holes, it was able to get back into the air. Nice. The hijackers then demanded to be taken back to Cuba, so that's where they went. <laughs> when they landed in Havana, the three hijackers took off running through a nearby field, but were quickly tackled by Cuban soldiers. <laughs> and then, like, as soon as the, like, I just imagine, like, the hijackers jump off. And start running, and the pilot's like, "Close the door, we're getting out of here." <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, oh. yeah. So they're tackled. Yeah. Castro then vowed to the hijacked plane's captain that these men would spend the rest of their lives in four by four foot boxes. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. He gave me three hundred thousand dollars. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he has three hundred thousand dollars, and he's like, "Do whatever you want with it. I'm <laughs> yeah, out of here." Yeah. They have been just a pain in my. Would you career. mind if I got to do like a little bit of shopping first before we go? Like, yeah, can yeah. I spend like one night here? Yeah, yeah. I'm just today has been a it day. It's been a long day. Let me Wednesdays. tell you. <laughs> Americans were finally aware that hijackings weren't just fun Johns to Cuba anymore because of these guys' threat to run it into the atomic reactor. Mm -hmm. The domestic terrorism. Yeah, people realized that planes could actually be used as weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. So on December 5th, 1972, the Nixon administration declared that starting in 1973, airlines would be required to screen every single passenger with a metal detector along with inspecting the contents of carry-on bags. All commercial airports would also have a local police officer or sheriff's deputy at each boarding gate. There were still those that believed that this was a violation of Fourth Amendment rights, which is... Unreasonable searches and seizures. Yes. But the majority of Americans were tired of being hijacked and were okay with the screenings. Skyjacking significantly decreased after that. Hmm. So, to basically sum it up, because I skipped over a lot of hijackings... <laughs> A few hundred. <laughs> yeah. Between 1961 and 1972, there were 159 commercial flights hijacked just in the United States, with 130 of those happening between 1968 and 1972. <laughs> in a four-year period. Yeah. 
In those five years, there was often at least one, if not more, hijackings a week, and there were even several days when two planes were hijacked on the same day at the same exact time, just by coincidence. And so my main source was The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking by Brendan Eichhorner, and The Golden Age of Hijacking, I think, just really sums up golden age period. hijacking yeah. yeah i don't know it just doesn't seem like, real to it, me uh, like that... the cult the golden age of flying and yep. the golden age of hijacking exactly um so arthur barkley yes wanted a hundred million dollars from the supreme court yes because he had lost some uh lawsuits against his employer and the teamsters union so but he like that doesn't mean that the Supreme so, Court has your money. But he was just like he was so frustrated with the with the the justice system, the legal system, that he basically he lost his suits. So he countered suit or he countersuited for a hundred million dollars. Uh-huh. Or he filed suit against the IRS for a hundred million dollars in damages and fought it all the way to the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court denied it. See, my thing is like, sure, be like, hey, I want $100 million from the IRS. That makes sense to me. Anyways, I still think it was dumb. Dumb, dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Uh, My other sources for this were the golden age of plane travel, what flying was like in the 1950s and 1960s compared to now, by Mark Llewellyn, and how hijackers commandeered over 130 American planes in five years by Brandon I. Corner. So, I don't know. This story is crazy to me because I can't even imagine, first of all, just boarding a plane without even showing your ID or a ticket. Mm. But I also think, you know, before 9-11, I can't even imagine, like, the, I don't want to say a lack of security, but yeah. Yeah. Compared to now. I mean, like, I remember, like, going to the airport with my dad all the time, like, when I was younger. Yeah. Before 9-11, like, I'm like, yeah, you'd go back to the gate and, like... I want to say you didn't have to get screened if you weren't a passenger, but I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly or not. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't remember. I felt, like I, I, felt, I felt like in Boise I didn't have to. Like, yeah. <laughs> Maybe this just is like, Boise. You know, sometimes the screening was on and sometimes it wasn't. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's crazy. Uh, presidential quiz. Yeah. It was what president broke into the law school office to check his grades. Hmm. Do you have any ideas? Oh, you said Taft. Yeah. That's right. So it wasn't Taft. Uh, it was Richard Nixon. Uh, because, of course, just yeah. <laughs> old habits die hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just classic. Did, so did he get away with it and then later dick. found out? Or? Yeah, uh, yeah. He, like, later admitted to it? Yeah. Huh. Duke Law. Yeah. Yeah, that's where he went to school. <laughs> so if you like this episode... Please rate, review us wherever you listen so other people can find us. Share it. Share it. Tell your friends about it. Also, make sure you subscribe so you never miss a future episode. You can, you know, if you're alone, alone and bored, you can at least listen to us. We'll be your friends. (laughs) Close your eyes and pretend we're all hanging out. Talking about crazy stuff. Um... If you would like to look at some merchandise or a timeline of these stories or show notes, please go to americathebizarre.com. If you would like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com and search for America the Bazaar. The link is also in the show notes. And there's some pretty cool perks to supporting the podcast, so I would definitely go check that out if I were you. That's some pretty sweet stickers. We do have some pretty sweet stickers. So... You know, 
Make sure also if you have any stories that you've read that have to do with crazy American history, send that to us. We want to hear about it. But super interested in stories, personal stories. If you got them from family members, yes, that sort of history is just also it's unbelievable. Like the 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 connections that get built. Uh, uh, when those stories get published somehow, you know? Yeah, if you were on a plane or know of a relative that was on a plane that got hijacked, especially if they got got to go to Cuba, we want to hear about it. (laughs) The the Castro Primo treatment? Yes, send that in. So, and then other than that, I think until next time, stay stay weird, America. America.